Okay, I'd like to welcome everybody here to the second event in this year's uh, Colorado College's Faith Week. Uh, yesterday we had a peace rally, and that went really well. And today we're excited to have Dr. Mary Doak, a professor of Notre Dame, um, uh, a professor at Notre Dame of theology, here with us to speak about eschatology. Our theme this year for Faith Week is Where Are We Going? So you can see that this talk on eschatology is pretty relevant. Um, where are we going in the future? And um, and so uh, with that, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dr. Doig because she's pretty impressive. Uh, she went to the uh, Loyola, Loyola University of Chicago um, to get her Bachelor of Arts degree in 1987 and then continued her education at the University of Chicago, receiving her Master's degree in 1988 and her Ph.D. in 1999. She's published several articles. Um, recent articles include The Task of Utopia, A Pragmatist and Feminist Perspective, Hope, Eschatology, and Public Life. And she recently published a book, The One and the Many, A Contemporary Reconstruction of the God-World Relationship and Reclaiming Narrative for Public Theology. Tonight she's going to be speaking specifically um, on exploring the attractive power and the political implications of Christian apocalyptic, such as the Left Behind series, in the United States. And so she, with that, she'll give us some information on Christian eschatology specifically and uh, contemporary apocalyptic views. She has a background in feminist and political theology and eschatology. So with all that, you can see that Dr. Doak's pretty impressive. We're really excited to have her here, and I would like you to join me in welcoming her tonight. Thank you. Is this off now? Thank you, April, for that overly generous uh, introduction. Good evening. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here to share with you uh, some of my thoughts tonight on our ultimate hope, where we're going. Uh, and I'd like to especially thank the chaplain's office uh, for inviting me to be part of Faith Week, and Bruce, Linda, April, Annie, and anyone else who was involved in making this uh, such a smooth and comfortable process for me. Thank you so much. And to all of you for coming, I hope we'll have some plenty of time uh, to share thoughts, um, engage in your interests uh, after I do a little bit of presentation. Uh, my focus is going to be on apocalyptic, but that's um, the we're going to kind of go, go from there to see that that is one essential, early, important. Christian understanding of where we're going, but it is only one among many. So I want to use this as an opportunity uh, to think about generally, what is it we hope for? What implications does our hope have for the way we live our lives? And more broadly, what ought we to hope for? I'm going to try to answer all that. I just thought I wish you would show you a, a, a reflective topic and try to show how some of this information I have on apocalyptic and its place within the Christian tradition of eschatology might contribute to that, uh, our thought on that. Chances are that either you take for granted an apocalyptic perspective or you think it's really weird, wacky stuff. In like fact, that's usually what happens in my classes. I either get students who've never met anyone who took it seriously before or never met anyone who didn't, which is interesting when they start talking to each other. Um, I want to move a little further beyond both either, either position, taking it for granted or 
thinking it's really weird, uh, to look a little bit about where did it come from? Why does it attract so many adherents, especially in the United States of America? It's much bigger here than it is in most other countries. There's a wonderful quote from someone in Europe who said, no, we don't have apocalyptic here. We ship those people off to the States. I don't know what that says about us, but... Um, and then what are the non-apocalyptic Christian hopes, and how do they uh, relate to the apocalyptic one? So my plan tonight, so you know where we're going and when we're, you're likely to come back down to earth and get out of here, is to talk a little bit uh, about the origins, the function, politically and religiously, of apocalyptic, its roots as one vision among others, and then to put it in the context of broader Christian hopes for ultimate realization and fulfillment and to think about how we situate ourselves. I, um, see if I can get this, oh, there it is. I'm going to be using slides, but I'm going, um, for a couple of reasons, just so you know what this is up for. I'm, um, I've interspersed some images of eschatological, anything to do with the end time, and specifically apocalyptic, violent, imminent end, um, partly because the artistic tradition is full of great images on apocalyptic. Apocalyptic tends to be visual. It's symbolic, representative, descriptive of visions, of things seen, and it seems to have intrigued artists through the centuries. So I've put in a few, apocalyp uh, few images. Uh, many of you will know that is Michelangelo's. Um, it's a vision of someone damned being dragged down to hell. But I put it in. Uh, I was particularly intrigued because it was labeled in one uh, thing I was going through as one without hope. So we begin thinking about Christian hope. I thought I would stick that in. I'm going to intersperse slides uh, of artwork so you can kind of see how this comes to life for some people with some just bullet points of where I'm going on the topic. I'm not going to read through it, and I may not even do them in that exact order, but I'm going to put that up there so you have something uh, to look at and to pin down if you space out and lose the flow. <laughs> Say, wait, where are we? <laughs> oh, we're on point three. Um, and occasionally I'll try to remember to glance at it so that um, there's a connection between what I'm saying and what I put up there. And if I miss something, you can, you can jot it down and ask it the question. Now, wait, what about that point? So um, I want to begin with the fact that America has a deep, rich, persistent apocalyptic tradition. Uh, it's widespread today. In doing some research, I noticed that many websites thought it would end that it was a build up to 2000 or 2001, depending on how you dated the millennium. And if the end didn't come soon, we'd give it up. But that hasn't happened as far as I can tell. The uh, Left Behind series keeps writing new books and getting new movies out. Uh, seems to still have an audience. Some statistics that were being tossed around, <coughs> excuse me, approximately 25% of Americans expect the end in their lifetime. And over 55% expect the book of Revelation to literally come true at some time, if not in their lifetime. That's, that's pretty widespread apocalyptic fervor right now in this country. It's rooted in the American tradition. 
we have um, apocalyptic all the way back. Columbus apparently was intrigued by apocalyptic, wrote a book of apocalyptic prophecies, and connected his discovery of this new world, new to Europeans, with the end time. Uh, Puritans, the utopian communities also of the 19th century, saw themselves as establishing the perfect community that would begin the end, the final perfect community so God would bring in the end. Mormons, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists began with or have a lot of apocalyptic emphasis. Hence to be run throughout our tradition. The dominant form today is what is called premillennial dispensationalism. Yeah, we get a lot of interesting arguments. This was developed, at least scholars say it was developed, by Reverend John Darby, a Church of Ireland minister who came to the United States where this became very popular in the 19th century. In premillennial dispensationalism, it's premillennial because history gets worse and worse and worse until God intervenes. And it's God's intervention that starts the millennial reign of peace after the evil people get wiped out. It tends to predict a final struggle between good and evil that is imminent. It's about to happen. And in particular, we have this idea. Um, I have a nice image of it here. The faithful will be raptured up. Uh, I don't know if it shows. You can see these, these figures are... are People, I don't know why they're dressed in white, because theoretically I think they'd have, I guess their clothes don't get raptured up. Um, they're being taken out of their cars and buses and airplanes, uh, the faithful going up, and then uh, escaping some or all of the massive suffering and tribulations that usher in the end time. Let me um, talk for just a minute about the definition of apocalypticism. What is it? I'm using the term, uh, people use it somewhat differently. But in general, it's um, rooted in the symbolic literature, a type of symbolic literature called apocalyptic literature, a genre from the end centuries uh, B.C. and the first centuries A.D. Uh, apocalyptic is a symbolic literary genre written then that had characteristics of predicting an end time soon, usually not always with a violent cataclysm, gets applied now to that perspective. So we talk about apocalyptic views, and the way I'm using the term here, prediction of the end of history soon, usually violently, tends to have a sharp dualistic approach between good and evil. You're on one side or the other. There's not much room for gray in between. The good are on the side of God. The evil are on the side of the devil, the Antichrist, uh, the beast, Satan. Um, and it tends to come down because it's the end. You're going to have to make a final choice. You're one or the other. Much suffering will come for the unfaithful and much vindication and reward for the faithful. A lot of revenge fantasy with uh, the opponents really getting it, really suffering for what they've done to the faithful. Let's look for a minute at 
Ah, there's a nice image uh, from John Martin of a violent end of history, what it would, in his view, look like. Is that coming out okay? All right. I want to talk for a minute about the biblical roots of apocalyptic. The whole thing of where did this come from? I'm not going to go through all of the roots, but the most commonly used biblical roots of contemporary apocalyptic draws on the Hebrew, thank you, the Hebrew Bible tradition, especially the book of Daniel. Find some phrases here and there, but the last part of the book of Daniel moves from being a prophetic kind of text and folk tales, <coughs> excuse me, to a prediction that the rebellion of the Maccabeans against Antiochus' fourth epiphanies will be the end of history. It wasn't. Um, they also predicted that God would intervene and they would win against the Hellenistic emperor, and they did. But it wasn't the end of history. So that we have that book, which includes, depending on how you read it, Resurrection of the Dead, description of the final end with reward and suffering. Jesus' time was a time of apocalyptic. <coughs> Excuse me. You see that uh, reflected especially in the Gospel of Mark and some of the epistles, uh, to the point where it's said that apocalyptic is the mother of Christian theology. Um, it's an interesting thought that we need to grapple with, especially those of us who are not apocalyptic. Rome was dominating the uh, Jewish society, controlling the temple in ways that were felt to be unacceptable, inappropriate, and intolerable for religious Jews. There was a prediction, a common hope, <coughs> excuse me, that God would intervene to end history. I think we need water. Uh, and certainly Jesus' followers seem to have expected that he, his death, his resurrection, was the beginning of the end. He was supposed to come back soon to finish off the work. He radically changed history. We were in the final days, and he was going to finish it. The other, so Gospel of Mark in particular, Jesus proclaiming, the kingdom of God is at hand. The course, the most famous, um, the book which gives us the name apocalyptic, because it is the apocalypse, Revelation is apocalypse in the Greek, is the book of Revelation, the revelation to John the Divine, John of Patmos. It predicts the destruction of the Roman Empire will end history soon, using pretty much the same dating as the book of Daniel, within a couple of years <coughs> from the events of that time. So this is a well-established biblical Tradition, an essential part of early Christianity. It's a nice image of the resurrection of the dead. I guess this dead guy still has his skin. Those who don't are coming up as skeletons. The coming back up of the dead. Not simply a life after death for disembodied souls, but the kind of hope of the Hebrew people for a resurrected, a return to embodied life of a different order. Uh, now, one thing that... I guess it leaves me thinking when you talk about apocalyptic. You get these ideas 
Today, from the biblical tradition, the biblical tradition comes out of historical context. Why? What made people then, what makes people now, hope for the end of the world? We don't maybe always think about it that way, (coughs) but apocalyptic is a hope. It foretells doom and destruction for many, but hope, reward, end of suffering for the few. And it is, as functions, as a hope for people. Genuine apocalyptics usually not only see the end coming, but hope for it. They want it to come. Why? These are general characteristics that apply historians of apocalyptic, which I am not, by the way, um, say fit the context of when apocalyptic uh, is expressed. What's going on at the time? Usually, in some form, the present order of history is felt to be intolerable. It can't go on like this. We can't take it much longer. And there's little or no hope for change. It's the expression of hope for those who have no stake in the contemporary order, usually. The hope of the hopeless and the powerless, who can't stand their situation, can't go on this way, and cannot do anything to change it. Often, it involves an experience of culture shock. I think it certainly did in the time of the book of Daniel, (coughs) where Jewish culture was was encountering a much apparently stronger cosmopolitan and very different Greek culture, Hellenic culture of the ancient world. And your culture is being pushed aside. It's often part of what makes the present situation intolerable. Also has the benefit of expressing how God is active in contemporary or the events of the day, contemporary events for whoever is the apocalyptic figure. Our history becomes the arena of God's action and therefore has divine significance, ultimate importance. This matters. And it's interesting, as a lot of people have pointed out, it continues to attract, despite the fact that it has a 100% failure rate thus far in predicting the end. I don't know how many more times it will fail, but thus far uh, it has always been wrong. Another nice uh, uh, picture I, I put in, it gets it some of that classic division uh, and what happens to the people on the other side, those who are oppressing us and making our lives intolerable. This suggests, uh, at least to me, reflections on the politics of apocalyptic. How does it function to inspire historical political action, people to get involved in their the events of their day? Apocalyptic is not generally a private hope. It's moving out of the sphere of, I hope for heaven when I die, I hope to avoid hell when I die, to seeing the events of history what we share, what's going on among us as the arena of God's action. And it was written by Daniel. It was written by John of Patmos. It tends to be written today. 
to inspire and reinforce certain political agendas, which, of course, differ on the time. But the politics of it, based on its ability to relate the events of political history, whichever ones they happen to be, Antiochus' fourth epiphanies and the rising up of the Maccabean revolt, Christian resistance to persecution in Asia Minor, if you're with John of Patmos, um, Hal Lindsey in the Cold War, for those of you who remember the 70s, or today with the Left Behind series, and the geopolitical situation of Israel, for example, um, tends to connect that history, major events of our time, with God's action to end history in a way that enables you to identify your opponents as ultimately evil and therefore not to be compromised with in any way, and your own group gets identified with the ultimate good. You're on the side of God. You will be vindicated against the odds. Written to encourage cultural or cultural political or political resistance. Don't give in to the more powerful culture. Don't give in to the political forces and empires that are powerful today. Sometimes it goes beyond resistance to out-and-out rebellion, as you see with the Maccabean Revolt. Promises an imminent revenge against your opponents and a reward coming soon for the people, your group, who are suffering. In this, <coughs> it has throughout history been the, the hope of the powerless, the hope of the hopeless. Among established groups, you see this happen throughout history, as churches, groups of people become established, set up institutions, go mainstream, they drop apocalyptic. They now have a stake in history. They have a voice in it. They're no longer wishing for the end of it. They have institutions to maintain. On the other hand, it reappears consistently throughout history, certainly in the Christian West, throughout uh, the history of the Christian churches, among marginalized groups. People who couldn't, uh, didn't like the way Christendom was run under the Roman Catholic Church opposed that with an apocalyptic vision. Joachim of Fiore is a great case of that. There have been Thomas Munster is another. Um, many cases of hoping for radical change by uh, people who are left out. That is, I take it, what uh, the politics of apocalyptic are. It's another Michelangelo here. You see the cosmic battle theme going on, the idea of, of the forces of good and evil fighting it out. And you know whose side you want to be on. Okay, this also then, if you're with me, suggests, I think, a real paradox for American culture. We've got something different going on here. Because it's not exactly the hope of the powerless. We're the most powerful country on earth. We don't even have the dualistic uh, Cold War situation which locked us in combat with the Soviet Union. Why still apocalyptic? Especially when, oh, I'm sorry, I was a little off. Oh, what's happened here? My screen, it's okay. Can you read? Okay. Oh, well, you're missing a P there, possible. Sorry about that. Um, 
He could say it's the powerless in the United States, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But there's still a problem because we have presidents and cabinet secretaries expressing apocalyptic views for over 20 years. If the president's cabinet of the most powerful country in the world is apocalyptic, seeing an end coming soon, something different is going on here than has generally happened in the history of apocalyptic. At least to my mind, something different is going on. So it makes me think, and this is just this is the kind of thing I think about. As I analyze religion and politics. What's going on here? What do I what what seems to fit, what doesn't fit? How could apocalyptic have such an attraction here in this country? A uh, couple of possible reasons, of course. The sense of this new country as a real momentous development in history has, from its beginning, led people to see this as the final stage of history. And I've mentioned that. Uh, we've certainly experienced repeated cultural upheavals, so that can incline people to apocalyptic. Those of you who know foreign films will notice that Americans like good and bad, right and wrong dualism rather than nuance and don't give us uh, unhappy endings where the good guy doesn't win. But I want to draw attention mostly to these last two because these are, I think, some of what's going on, especially here. If you talk to almost any side in this country, they feel marginalized. Just even look at the political sphere, but also within Christianity. You've got a sense that the other side is dominant, we're left aside. Let's look at the debates over who controls the media. Uh, everybody feels it's the other one. I think there's a widespread sense of marginalization in such a way that the president's cabinet members could legitimately feel, in some ways, marginal. It's odd, but in a country that doesn't have a single historically strong, continuous, or religiously established tradition, and it's a pluralistic country, everybody can easily feel they're on the margins or about to be pushed to the margins. I think that when you listen to apocalyptics, the left or the right or in between, it's a sense, even if they're people of power now, they're about to lose it. Come the next election, we're sunk. Or we own these, we, we control this section of the country, but we're marginalized because that section of the country despises us. The liberals sneer at the fundamentalists. The fundamentalists call the liberals immoral, secular. So we got a sense, I think, on all sides that no one controls the culture. It's easy for everybody to feel marginalized. Uh, another, I think, aspect of contemporary apocalyptic maybe the fact that we have what seems to be recognized by all sides as an unsustainable way of life under the current circumstances. In fact, especially with Reagan's cabinet, this was the occasion for the apocalyptic remarks of James Watt and others. We don't have to conserve our resources. The world is ending soon anyway. Or as the uh, Reverend Mooney said in an earlier uh, context, why polish the brass on a sinking ship? If we have an unsustainable way of life, 
far as I can tell, there are only three possible options. Either we hope in a scientific technological breakthrough that makes it possible to continue to live this way without continuing to use up fossil fuels the way we are, or we radically change our way of life, or history ends and it takes away the problem. Either way, you're looking at a radical change. And I think that might be some of what inspires apocalyptic in the United States. We turn to some other options. What's going on when Christians are not apocalyptic? One of the reasons apocalyptic is thought to be or said to be the mother of Christian theology is because we had to do a lot of thinking about how to understand what Jesus was about if the end didn't come. One of the options is just to keep repeating, the end is coming, it's been a slight delay, folks, but don't worry, we're, it's, it's going to be soon anyway. A couple of particularly the epistles, they're much later than the Gospel of Mark, take that approach. But you also see some serious thinking and some beautiful alternative theologies developing out of that situation of the delay of the parousia. Second coming, delayed, rethinking what is history about? Are we really in the final stages? Um, one version, I'm collapsing a little bit here. Matthew, but especially Luke, the Gospels of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, argue that history is progressing towards its fulfillment. There's a reason why there's a delay. It's not just that God fell asleep. Maybe there's a job for us to do. This interim is not merely waiting. It's a time of activity. We have something to do. So you get the theologies of the church having a role in history, and especially in Luke, a theology of salvation history. We have something to do. Spread the church. Spread justice in the world. We have to get busy, and this history, this time between, we don't know how long it's going to be, still has a purpose. We're no longer looking for an imminent end. A different alternative is taken in the Gospel of John, something referred to as realized eschatology. His focus is on the eternal breaking into history in the event of Jesus Christ, life, death, and resurrection is the historical transformation we look for no other. Rather than looking forward in history to a further fulfillment, he looks and says, the eternal is here now. We have a breaking into history of the eternal, a new relation to God, new form of life, of spirituality, of salvation, is now possible. The, Instead of looking forward, it's called realized eschatology. The hope we look for is already here. So actually, if you see, but in terms of the four Gospels, I would argue only one, the earliest, is apocalyptic. Mark expects an imminent end. It doesn't have the violent, maybe some violence. It doesn't have a revenge fantasy and dualism, but he expects an end very soon. Matthew and Luke have a theology of the purpose of history and a task to be fulfilled in it. And the Gospel of John has a theology of 
what's been established already in Jesus Christ so that he's no longer looking for the end of history. But we also see what happens at the early Christians uh, because, of course, apocalyptic continued even in the Christian tradition. These Gospels have other views, but the book of Revelation comes even later and it goes back to apocalyptic with a vengeance. But things change when the emperor becomes a Christian, don't they? We suddenly have a place in history. So Eusebius in particular theologized a beginning of peace and harmony on earth, things getting better, millennialism where things now are getting better until the end, uh, that peace begun in the empire. Political situation is in our favor. This is what we hope for in history and nothing else until some far off end. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, did something of the same sort, but not with the empire, which after all fell apart in his time, but with the Christian church. The church is the reign of peace in history that we hope for and will continue until some unspecified date. In either case, you stop looking for the end and just enjoy the reality of what's been achieved. Um, you should be able to see then that these also have political implications. Just as apocalyptic affects people politically in certain ways, so do these non-apocalyptic views of the end, the eschaton. Matthew and Luke especially clear in the Gospel of Luke, but also, I think, in Matthew, say, you know what? There's time to make the world better. There's time to try to establish greater justice on earth. It's a political or sociopolitically relevant stance. Don't sit up on the mountaintop waiting. Get busy. We can do some things. We can change some things. Um, that, by the way, so been recovered recently, tends to be, especially the Gospel of Luke, very popular with contemporary liberation theologians. The liberation theologies of Latin America, uh, black theology in the United States, um, various forms of liberationist theologies, as with the United States social gospel movement, look for history as an arena in which we can act on God's side to bring about a better world. History is a task for us to work on. The realized eschatology of the Gospel of John also has political implications, tends to de-emphasize historical political questions. You're not so much looking to change history or hope for its end because you're looking elsewhere to a spiritual plane. Not all, this is, was very popular in some beautiful ways in uh, the first half of the 20th century with existentialist philosophies. See the, this as a spiritual reality we can achieve now. Has a dangerous tendency to make people apathetic or individualistic, withdraw from public life. It's not that important. Spirituality is an alternative. And of course, you can see pretty clearly the political implications of seeing the empire, the government, as the reign of God on earth leads to support for 
the political status quo with Augustine of Hippo leads to support for an ecclesial status quo. The, um, and Augustine's, I think, really has dominated Roman Catholic thought, which is my tradition, pretty much ever since he insisted that the book of Revelation gets in the canon only if you take it metaphorically about the struggle between good and evil and we aren't looking for an imminent end to history. We're, we're realizing the beauty of the church in history. Let's move then to the last part of my comments so that we can have time for conversation. What works in our time? I can, sorry, I put some pretty uh, graphic images up there. Uh, drought in Africa, it's a possibility uh, that many people are predicting. The uh, nuclear mushroom cloud is still uh, a possibility for where, what, what are we looking forward to? What are the challenges we face? What should we hope for our future? And how do we what could this Christian tradition of many different views contribute to it? Okay, you, we can diagnose our contemporary situation any of a hundred million different ways, but that I'd throw out some of what I think are clearly established and major challenges we face, particularly <coughs> radical global climate change, which most of the scientists that I'm familiar with seem to think is already underway. When the permafrost is no longer perma, it's melting. Um, they see robins in the north where they've never seen them before. Uh, something is changing. Another major factor of our time, global economic interdependence. We are quickly becoming one economic system. And that faces us, I think, with the choice of either moving towards greater cooperation for the good of all or a really ruthless system of domination and exclusion because it would be a big system. Also, as we are already experiencing in a more globally interdependent world, we're getting religious and cultural tensions as people come together. What then do we need? These are my ideas about the attitudes that we need to foster. We can come back then to look at where in the Christian tradition we might find resources to help. I think we need care, an ethic of care for the planet, taking it seriously, uh, commitment to greater justice and community. Obviously, those two are related to the global climate change and the economic interdependence. I think serious resistance to evil, greed, and apathy. And the idea of returning to religion as re ligere, what binds together, what unites. Because we seem increasingly to be facing a reality where religion is either seen as something that binds humanity together or viciously divides us. I would argue also for an engagement in history without extremism. There's a tendency, I think, especially if you're American, to either see things in utterly apocalyptic terms, this is it, this is the final thing, this is all or nothing, 
if we don't solve this, we're sunk and there's no compromise. Or another extreme, which is, I guess I would call apocalyptic fatigue. Well, yes, said that we were all going to fall apart when the Exxon Valdez uh, spilled and the sound came back. You, you know, you said that was a big issue and the president, the other party won and the country's still here. It's a tendency to react to say nothing is really all that serious. We'll somehow survive. Well, I think the reality is history makes challenges, presents us with challenges for our time. Sometimes they are really momentous. And sometimes we rise to the challenges and sometimes we fail. I was watching uh, Judgment at Nuremberg recently over the weekend, a wonderful 1961 Spencer Tracy movie. And the powerful images of Germany after World War II and Nuremberg bombed out as people grappled with the challenge they had failed to face. They didn't take it that seriously. We need to somehow skirt between an attempt to see everything as the end of the world or deciding that it doesn't really matter. We'll get through somehow. Um, we have to try to look at history as a reality that makes challenges without um, over panicking. I want to suggest here a couple of closing things. What could apocalyptic contribute, Christian apocalyptic tradition? This is also a Jewish uh, tradition, as you can see from the fact that it's in the book of Daniel. We have Jewish apocalyptic, although not much Jewish apocalyptic that I know of after A.D. 125, when the second Jewish revolt against Rome failed, they tended to discourage apocalyptic after that because rebelling against Rome was not getting them anywhere. Um, it's also in Islam. What does this apocalyptic way of thinking, prevalent in Christianity but not only there, contribute? What certainly takes current history very seriously, challenges people to see God acting in history and to resist an unjust status quo. A lot of resistance, sometimes out and out rebellion. Takes seriously the concern with good and evil. An idea that Reinhold Niebuhr, a 20th century theologian, I think the only person I know to have made this point, he said the Antichrist represents the fact that our possibility for evil grows in history along with our possibility of doing good. If you look at the apocalyptic dimensions of growing evil and good in history as they face off towards a final battle. He said, take seriously, and I think now with our increased technological abilities, we see, really need to take seriously, that the same increase in knowledge, technology, organization that makes us able to do great good also makes possible great evil. So apocalyptic takes that seriously. I think the dangerous things in apocalyptic for our time, especially when we can do so much good or evil, is that it tends to be dualistic, oppositional, dividing people into good and bad, friend or foe, in an unnuanced, uncompromising, divisive way. It tends to absolutize the contemporary struggle. You can't compromise. This is the final battle. Full of revenge fantasy, 
which I don't think is encouraging the best parts of human beings. And as a contemporary theologian, Catherine Keller, has pointed out, it encourages the habit of thinking away the world, thinking always that the world is at, will end, is ending, is only temporary. She has a nice way of putting it. She says it encourages an infantilized, uh, childlike attitude where that if we break this world, our Father in Heaven will give us a shiny new one. So irresponsibility towards this world and this history because it's passing away. Um, and I think that's, that's a really serious issue to raise, especially at a time when we can do damage to the world and to other people that we couldn't do when apocalyptic, the habit of thinking the end of the world originated. It has dangerous implications now that I think it didn't at that point. Uh, this kind of follows from some of what I've said already. If we look at the alternatives, salvation history, the idea that we're, we've got a task to fulfill, to improve the world, to do something good that will in some way participate in the fulfillment of history, is powerful in its call, as we see in Latin America, to action to improve history and society, to see that as something God wants. It does risk, doesn't always do this, but it does risk absolutizing the contemporary struggle, just as apocalyptic does. If somehow God is involved in this, you can slip into thinking this battle is the one for the outcome of history. Realized eschatologies, and I see I'm off screen again, which includes not just the Gospel of John, but the millennialism of Augustine, where the goal of history is achieved as far as it will be in the church or in Eusebius in the political uh, situation, inspires attention to valuing our current possibilities, which is a good thing. Not only looking for what isn't, what we ought to do, but valuing what is. It risks, as I've mentioned already, apathy towards historical political change and an individualism. Okay, so what do we get out of all of this? There's one way to focus. Uh, return to Martin's Day of Wrath on that side, and many of you will know Edward Hicks' The Peaceable Kingdom. The alternative. Some views see the world as ending in fire and violence, Others see, turning to Isaiah, child lays down with a lamb, some of the other prophecies, but also the book of Revelations, new heaven and new earth. It comes down at the end. The idea not of a destruction, but of a fulfillment, a restoration, a, a remade, redeemed, saved world. In some ways, I guess the question I want to uh, at least pose out of this look at Christian apocalyptic and other forms of hope. What is our vision of hope? Do we envision a fulfillment of history, a disregard of history because we get out of here? That would be the third. I couldn't get any good pictures of that. Could you say history, history world doesn't matter, we're out of here. It could be an end or fulfillment. <coughs> okay, so uh, I think this is some of what, what I'd like to in, open up for conversation. But let me end with, I think I have two more slides here, um, where I give you a little bit more of my argument, uh, my proposal, so that you have some, I don't leave you simply with questions, but 
at least one argument for how we could gather this up. I think what we need is a modified apocalyptic. One that takes seriously apocalyptic's engagement with history and concern for its outcome, but seeks to fulfill history and the world rather than destroy it. Um, so I would argue for a combination of the versions of hope we've seen. Apocalyptic seriousness about contemporary history, salvation histories, commitment to making this a better world, and realized eschatologies, celebration of the good that is here now. But also, and I've put, I've pulled out here, are a couple of biblical ideas that would also, inherently Christian and Jewish ideas that would also temper that vision as we try to apply it to our time. The idea that God acts with purpose in history, God in the biblical tradition is the Lord of nature and of history, created the world and governs history, is able to fulfill it. But while we look for God active in and concerned about history, remember particularly some of the Hebrew injunctions against pride, idolatry, attempts to control God, to reduce God to human terms. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's plans are not our plans. I wouldn't take that to the point of disavowing any knowledge or any attempt to figure out what God might want in a situation but we have to keep some considerable humility about the fact that God surpasses our understanding. Um, I would also argue for the idea that the, cre the Lord of nature, the creator of a good creation, created the world not to destroy it, but to fulfill it. There's a wideness in God's mercy, as the saying goes, that counteracts, I think, the tendency of either salvation history or apocalyptic to see the person you're struggling against as other opponent evil out there. We're on God's side, they're not. Uh, finally, we're invited in this modified apocalyptic to cooperate with God in history but remember that God is the primary agent. Let's see what... Brief conclusions here. What, um, to move towards conversation, let me sum up a couple of ideas. Apocalyptic, as I've tried to make clear, is only one of the biblical views. It's an important one. It's not easily ignored. It's a part of the Christian and biblical tradition, but it is only one of the views, and we need to grapple with all of the views of hope. <coughs> Second, I would have you keep in mind that religious beliefs have political implications, especially when you're talking about what ultimately matters. Does history matter? What kind of history matters? How does it matter? What is finally worthwhile in life? Those beliefs 
those values have political implications. I think there's room for political freedom uh, if you keep a couple of, of um, rules in mind. One is that you don't legislate beliefs, you legislate behavior. Second, you only legislate behavior necessary to sustain the public order and not attempt to inf uh, impose a particular form of practice on a whole population if it's not uh, essential to the public order. But religious freedom cannot be based on the idea that religious beliefs are removed from public life because they cannot be. Religious beliefs have political implications. Then I've noticed my last points are kind of suggesting what I think um, the monotheistic, the Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christian, Islam, might contribute to our hope, and then specifically with the last one, uh, the Trinitarian God, what that contributes. Belief in a personal God secures personal immortality. One of my colleagues specializes in Hinduism. One of the interesting things about Buddhism and Hinduism, depending on your interpretation, is they generally do not have what we think of as personal immortality. Monotheistic traditions with a personal God also have the possibility of securing the worth and value of every person as a person. I think that's a statement of hope and value uh, to contribute, at least, to, call to, um, to the conversation. I've already said the biblical God can be seen in the Old and New Testaments as redeeming both nature and history, bringing them to their fulfillment. <coughs> Finally, the specifically Christian contribution might be the idea that the Trinitarian God, it's a Trinitarian monotheism. Some of you will have known that from your childhood catechism. We don't know why, but we know that there's three persons in one God, right? It's a mystery. The Trinitarian, I have made my students go further than that. The Trinitarian God is a God, a monotheistic one God conceived as love and communion. Loving communion is the ultimate reality that God makes possible and encourages the idea of human fulfillment achieved as loving community. Okay, so I'm just going to put up my last picture, which is another nice image, which I take to be the image of the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah, I didn't realize that when I came out here. <laughs> it's right here. You're in, if you have realized eschatology, you're in the end times. Okay, I've tried to move into some suggestions for conversation or what this might contribute to how we think about hope. So now I would like to hear if you have any questions, response, feedback, about what I said or about what you think we need.